A bunch of really, really old guys are the true culprits of the college loan bailout. We discuss this today on The Grid. The Grid, a digital frontier. I pictured patriots as they moved throughout our country. Do they look like individuals or small business? Were the rallies like church? I keep dreaming of a world I hope to one day see. And then, today, I got in. Hello, fellow Americans. This is Chris Coleman, your host with the Kingdom Patriot Group. Welcome to The Grid, where faith, politics, and commerce intersect. It was estimated in 2020 that 25 million Christians did not participate in presidential elections. 65 million did not participate in local elections. And 15 million were not even registered to vote. We can see the horrifying results of our failure to vote every time we turn on the news. Are you registered to vote? The most basic patriotic action an American citizen can take, an American Christian can take, is to vote. Go to vote.gov and learn how to register to vote in your state today. That's vote.gov. You can find the link in the show notes for this podcast. This is Sean Griffin from The Grid reminding you, patriots, vote. Welcome to this week's News and Review. In cultural news, just when you thought the left coast could not set the bar any lower, the California Assembly passes a bill to become a refuge state for trans kids and their parents. My message to California, look at your map. Interstate highways 8 and 10 are your tickets to Texas. In political news, Biden goes after the ultra-MAGA Republicans. They just don't get it. He doesn't get it. And apparently, never will. Conservatives are not in love with Donald Trump. They are in love with what he represents. The outsider pushing back against crony capitalism and a government that went from we the people and by the people to oppressing the people. CNN continues its shakeup as it's cutting off the ultra-liberal pundits masquerading as legitimate journalists. Enough so that Dan Rather is wondering what in the world is going on there. I love one person's tweet to Dan. When you have built your model and built your business around unfair and biased, when you actually make a move to the center and nonpartisan, it actually feels unfair. That person totally gets it. And despite what many conservatives have said, polling does suggest that the Dobbs decision is going to energize the liberal base and drive them to the voting booth in November. Folks, you need to vote. If the Republicans blow their momentum for this election cycle, they have only themselves to blame. Honestly, while I do believe in touting your own candidate, all that is required in this cycle is to say this, my opponent supports Biden and Biden is destroying the country. That really should be the campaign slogan of every conservative candidate this fall. Also, in a little reported story, the U.S. Census Bureau has been to have discovered undercounting the populations of Florida, Arkansas, Illinois, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Texas, while overcounting the populations in Delaware, Hawaii, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New York, Ohio, Rhode Island, and Utah. I'm sure this was an honest mistake, but it is going to cost Florida at least one, maybe two electoral votes. In fact, because of the overcounting, Delaware, Rhode Island, and Minnesota each are keeping a congressional seat that they are not entitled to. Beyond just the election, states are also apportioned federal funds, often by how the census shakes out. In criminal news, the Trump Mar-a-Lago raid continues. The FBI has finished going through the documents they seized. They have inventoried them, but Trump claims that he declassified all of them, so there was no classified material to grab in the first place. 
Former Attorney General Bill Barr says this is highly implausible. Trump's request for a special magistrate to review is still being considered. Like I said, this will be in the news and review likely every week for the foreseeable future. In medical news, a new peer-reviewed study shows that regular use of ivermectin reduces the potential for COVID-19 death by 92%. Wait, 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 wait. Isn't that the horse dewormer that was so vilified? Yes, it was. In fact, this is no small study. It included 88,000 people in a tightly controlled study group in Brazil. And it was conducted by Dr. Flavio Cadigiani, who is a doctor, a PhD, a board-certified endocrinologist, and has a master's degree in clinical endocrinology. Those who use it as a prophylactic or took it before an infection had these amazing results. And the truth shall set you free. Folks, for this week's News and Review, that's a wrap. Folks, there is so much to discuss regarding this $500 billion college loan bailout fiasco that truly I, I'm having trouble coalescing my thoughts into something that's both succinct and understandable. Nonetheless, let's give it a shot. First, we're going to discuss the how and the why. Then we're going to discuss the ethical argument, and we're going to wrap up with the faith, political, and commercial aspects of this topic. So first, the how and the why. Why do students even owe the federal government money for college loans? This seems like a far, far departure from the role of government to protect individual liberty, regulate commerce between the states, and provide for the common defense. So why are we here? Well, it turns out that the current $1.73 plus trillion in debt started some 64 years ago with the National Defense Education Act, NDEA. Loans were only available to select categories of students, particularly those studying engineering, science, or education. It was widely believed that, in many ways, this was a counter to the Soviet advances with the launch of Sputnik, so we wanted to catch up from a technology perspective, so we made college more available for those particular industries, those particular areas of focus that would help us compete. Now, it does appear that the largest amount of student loan debt is actually with for-profit universities or students who went to for-profit universities, with the most being owed to the University of Phoenix. Now, I'm guessing this is, it's really because of this university is because they were the really an early entry into the online education market, and that's been very attractive in today's economy. That being said, the student loan default rate is actually 52% right now for students who go to for-profit education universities. Let that sink in. One out of every two students defaults on their debt. But who actually gets hurt? Well, it's not the university because they get their money up front. And remember, the student is the borrower, the government is the lender, and the university is the vendor. But I digress. So student loans became more widespread in the 1960s with the introduction of the Higher Education Act of 1965. Remember, the initial purpose that I just quoted you was for that quote-unquote select type of student, science, engineering. And here, not 10 years later, the program's being expanded. Do you remember what Ronald Reagan once said? The nearest thing to attorney on earth is another government program. But I digress again. In 1965, the goal of this act was to assist with more social mobility and equal opportunity. In 1967, the Bank of North Dakota made the first federally insured student loan. And then in 1973, Sally Mae was introduced as the first large-scale government loan program. 
By 2010, the amount of student loan debt held by Americans actually exceeded credit card debt. Think about that for a minute. There have been multiple iterations with the Student Aid and Fiscal Responsibility Act in 2010, the Healthcare and Education Reconciliation Act of 2010. There have been many other amendments and adjustments to other acts and other laws that impact eligibility, repayment terms, and interest rates. In fact, at different points in this evolution, there was an unlimited amount you could borrow and no income requirements needed to qualify. Just chew on that. You could literally take out a teaching degree and elementary education from Harvard, take out $400,000 in student loans, and with a teacher's salary, there would be absolutely no hope of paying that kind of debt back. In March of 2020, borrowers got relief through a suspension of loan payments that has been extended many times and is actually set to expire in December of 2022 when payments are supposed to begin again. This was due to COVID, supposedly. So that's kind of the history of the federal loan programs in just a nutshell. There are many, many more details, but hopefully that's a decent overview that this is this is a process, this is an evolution, this is a group of laws and regulations that have made student loans available for quite some time, spanning more than 60 years. So, more when we return. All that is required for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. If you want to make a difference, you cannot sit on the sidelines. That's why you need to be a Kingdom Patriot. Join us today and help us fight for faith and freedom. If you give up just two cups of Starbucks per month, you can make a difference. Hi, I'm Jessica, and I'm a Kingdom Patriot. So now, at the beginning of this podcast, I said this whole ballot is the fault of a bunch of old people. So let's put some names to that accusation. Adam Smith in 1776, Alfred Marshall in 1890, Ibn Tamiya, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, an Islamic individual in the 12 and 1300s, Sir James Stewart in 1796, and John Locke in the 1690s. What in the world do these individuals have to do with today's Biden bailout? I'm so glad you asked, and because you listen to The Grid, we will answer. All of these folks were either the authors and or contributors to modern economic thought, specifically the law of supply and demand. You see, human compassion dictates that we help those in need, specifically in this case, students with insurmountable debt. But even more importantly, we must understand how we got here because those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So what does the law of supply and demand state? It explains the elasticity or correlation between supply, demand, and prices in the market. It explains, in other words, those economic relationships. So let me explain. Absent of any price controls by Apple, So let's say Best Buy only has 10 iPhone 15s sitting on the shelf, but there's 100 people lined up outside to buy them. Well, Best Buy can and likely would raise the price to whatever it could because it only needs 10 buyers, but they have 100 waiting to do exactly that. But what if the opposite is true? What if tomorrow Best Buy has 100 iPhone 7s on the shelf, but there's only 10 people who are willing to pay their price? Best Buy is either going to let them sit on the shelf or they're going to lower the price to move that product. You are always looking for equilibrium where supply and demand most closely match. Are you seeing this yet? How in the world does a bunch of old economy theorists, Best Buy, and iPhones explain the current debacle? Well, that's because the federal government, by making student loan program after program, 
lessening qualifications and requirements, making available to not specific students and individuals, but to all students for all degrees, it just flooded the educational market with demand. In reality, this is not different than rolling out a bunch of stimulus checks to entice people to spend money in the market to increase economic activity. By making student loans so easily available, and in other cases, grants that never have to be made back, it just flooded the market with demand that it created. Now, demand for what? Well, exactly, demand for higher education. Colleges and universities, no doubt, were at the very least huge beneficiaries of such programs, but more than likely were behind the scenes lobbying, expressing unwavering support for moving America forward, all the while staring a cash cow in the face. Don't believe me? Let's just look at a few facts. From 1969 till now, college tuition has increased an average of 3,009% over that period of time for a four-year degree in a public school and 2,300% in a private setting. You see, before the widespread availability of student loans, colleges would actually have to compete on their quality and pricing because the number of potential students in the market was limited. It was finite. But now, when the funnel is full, but capacity is limited, the law of supply and demand takes place. So let me give you a real-world example, a personal example. I was so fortunate to get my MBA from Notre Dame through their executive program from 2012 to 2014. The cost of that program was $96,000. That's crazy, right? Not if you compare it to just 10 years later, to the graduation class of 2024, That same program is now $148,000. This is just one of a thousand examples. So why do I share this with you? Because you need to understand, you need to clearly understand that the government is proposing, no, it's actually touting a solution to a problem it created. Politically, this drives me nuts about the government. They create a problem by spending taxpayer money. Then they attempt to solve the problem by spending more taxpayer money. It's the only legalized robbery that is in existence that I'm aware of. Now, to our second point. What are the ethical arguments of such a bailout? On one hand, shouldn't we want to help students who have no hope of paying back such mounting debt? If colleges took advantage of them by jacking up the prices, shouldn't they be held accountable? Well, did you know that both Trump and Biden already have provided relief to college students? Donald Trump in 2019 ordered loan forgiveness for approximately 25000 permanently disabled veterans, each person saving an average of about $30,000. Now, I'm going to pause there because if anyone deserves it, it's our veterans, for sure. They place their lives on the lines. They protect our liberty. If anyone is to be a beneficiary of a program, I'm all for the veterans. But let's move forward. In August 2021, Biden announced discharging $5.8 billion to 323,000 permanently disabled people. So now, These are people who are disabled, but now it goes beyond just the military. It's all disabled people. And so I think what has people so riled up is this new debt discharge, dung, is no longer helping someone disabled or someone who has a tragedy and can no longer make make money in order to do their paybacks. No, this new program is to provide $10,000 of forgiveness or $20,000 in case of Pell Grants to everyone with only one qualification, your income. If you make less than $125,000 as an individual or $250,000 as a married couple, you qualify. What? Holy crap. If I was coming out of college with debt and had lined up a sweet high-paying gig with a company, I would tell that employer, hey, pay me under this limit for a year or two so I can get all my debt forgiven. The ethics are astounding on this. 
So yes, ethically, we should find ways to help people. But one of my favorite memes is this. How about getting rid of medical debt of cancer victims instead of college loans for students? Or another favorite one says this. To all those who didn't go to college to avoid debt, congratulations, you now have college debt. You see, folks, someone has to pay this debt. That is what's crazy here. The federal government is owed this money. Remember, the student loan payments have been put on hold during the COVID pandemic. Brian Deese, the idiot economist of the White House, well, technically he's not an idiot. He's just a very, very good liar, is touting the payments restarting in December as the actual income to offset the bailout. Are you freaking kidding me? That money was already owed. That's not new income. How stupid does he think we are? So what actually happens to this money owed? That is a great question. There's only a couple options that can happen. If this money is forgiven, that money was still there. It was still, it was still loaned out. So first, the first option is the debt is shifted to all other taxpayers because taxes are raised to cover it. Well, that seems pretty unethical. Option number two is the government prints more money, but that just devalues the dollar and increases inflation. Or number three, punt the issue to future generations, among many others, that will likely spell the collapse of the United States in the next generation or two. And my guess, based on the lack of spine from the folks in our government, they will choose number three. And I'm not sure if I would label this legal or ethical. I'm not even spending a whole time on this. But that's the concept that the executive branch has no constitutional authority to do this in the first place. If I had known Trump and Biden had both done this before, I would be railing against them just as I am today. Congress can decide to do this, but the president cannot. It is very clear in the Constitution that Congress has the power of the purse, not the president. So I expect significant legal challenge to this action with his pen and his phone. We will wrap up when we return. My dad always says that freedom is not passed on through DNA, but rather it must be fought for and protected by every generation. That is why it is never too early to be involved in faith, politics, and commerce. I'm only 14 years old, and I'm already a Kingdom Patriot. You should be too. Join the fight for faith and freedom. Go to kingdompatriot.us today. So what are the faith aspects of this? That's a great question. I can find no reference in Scripture to relieving of debt except for these two examples. One is the parable that Jesus told, and the second is the year of Jubilee. In Leviticus 25, the primary principles in the year of Jubilee are that slaves are to be released, debts were to be forgiven, and property was repatriated. The central idea being that the land, the people, and the property all belong to God. In this case, the relief of debt was done between the loaner and the borrower. Matthew 18, we see the unmerciful servant who has forgiven his own debt, but then refused to forgive the debt of someone else. In both of these cases, it appears to me that the forgiveness transaction, the forgiveness of the debt, is between the loaner and the borrower. It is a hard issue. However, as we stated above, this debt is not quote-unquote truly forgiven. It's just shifted. So this act should really be called the Student Loan Repayment Transfer and Reallocation Act because instead of being truly forgiven, it's just being transferred to all taxpayers. It's amazing the articles that are being written that I found where many people who are not Christians but still want to cite Jesus anyway, saying that this is exactly what Jesus would do. I'm not saying he would or he wouldn't. I'm just saying that Jesus preaches on the eventual heart condition in regards to debt forgiveness. If Biden wants to forgive someone who owes him money, that's one thing, that's his prerogative. But to demand that everyone else forgive because he says so is an entirely different thing and demand that we pay for it. Lastly, I, I just can't see how this follows any biblical example of monetary stewardship. Now, the political imp impacts of this are so obvious. 
It's very divisive. Once again, it is pitting one group of people, students with loans, against everyone else who does not. Republicans against Democrats, conservatives versus liberals, student debtors versus all other taxpayers. Like I said earlier, I would imagine this is going to face significant legal challenge because politically, legally, it's hard to find this is even remotely constitutional. However, the biggest political impact is that it may be the largest bribery scheme in the history of mankind. Biden campaigned on this. He promised this. So in many ways, we really shouldn't be surprised. But the timing, the constituency, the divisiveness, the population segment that this is all meant for, it all leads to one thing, to buy the votes for the November elections. I hope and pray it's unsuccessful, but the power that money has over individuals is strong and can often influence our most basic of decisions. In the commercial arena, the one area that gets off scot-free is the universities. They have benefited immensely from these federal loans as it increased the population hundredfold on who would be available to go to school, thus allowing the unsustainable increase in cost. I don't see anything that changes this. Loans are still widely available, universities will still jack up their prices, and students will still not be good stewards of getting into these loans, and then the bailouts will continue to occur. This is just setting the precedent for future forgiveness programs. Ultimately, like most government programs and bailouts, it seems like crony capitalism is at work, and we're just giving handouts to areas of political expediency rather than solving the core issues, the core principles that created the problem in the first place. Crony capitalism might be a good topic for a future podcast. Another option would actually to be take advantage of the brain power at these institutions, these universities. Why? Because they are called higher learning. So these professors, these fellows, these PhDs, surely they can figure out a way to help students graduate literally debt-free. I know that Moscow University, or excuse me, St. Andrews University in Moscow, Idaho has done this. College of the Ozarks in Missouri has done this. There are several colleges out there that help their students graduate virtually debt-free. So I want to add one more thing, too, that really makes you wonder about all of this money going to the colleges and universities. What a lot of people don't realize are the size of endowments that these universities have. Now, endowments are usually, I'm going to just say for lack of better terms, are a nest egg of savings in which the interest will fund various programs. But when you think of all the federal dollars for students going to these, some of these numbers are going to make you sick. So, for example, we'll start at the top. These are the endowment numbers ending in 2020. Harvard University, $41.9 billion. Yale, $31.1 billion. Stanford, $28.9 billion. Princeton, $25.9 billion. MIT, $18.4 billion. University of Pennsylvania, $14.8 billion. Texas A&M University, $12.7 billion. University of Notre Dame, $12.3 billion. University of Michigan and Ann Arbor, $12.3 billion. Columbia University, $11.2 billion. When you think about these dollars, it's almost sickening that the kind of fees that are being charged for students, that in essence, the government is loaning money to be paid for, is crazy. With these kind of dollars, I think these universities are doing just fine. I hope today you have a better understanding of this college loan problem, how we got here, and what the faith and political commercial implications of this are. This is not how our government was really designed to function. We need godly leaders who are principled and disciplined to lead us out of this hole. It's often said, if you want to quit sinking into the hole, the very first thing you got to do is stop digging. 
it seems like for this one, we pulled out a very large shovel. Thank you once again for joining us today on The Grid. I'm Chris Coleman, and I am a Kingdom Patriot. Also, don't forget to visit our website at kingdompatriot.us to join the movement of faith and freedom. That's kingdompatriot.us. Join today so that together we can make a difference. Your membership is appreciated. Your input is valued. Your voice is needed. Oh,